I want to welcome everyone to um, LSE's online events platform. Uh, my name is Peter Tribowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting today's event, which is made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy Phelan Foundation. So a lot has transpired this past year um, from the killing of George Floyd and the huge protest it sparked last summer across America and beyond to the election of um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in November to the January 6th attack on the Capitol and all of this with the pandemic raging across America. At the U.S. Center, we've built in a number of lectures and panels and conversations this year to reflect on the state of American democracy. And I'm delighted to welcome Professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad to the LSE platform today to help us continue and deepen that conversation. Professor Muhammad is the Ford Foundation Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at Radcliffe's Institute for Advanced Studies. The former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture at the New York Public Library, Khalil's work focuses on the broad intersections of race and democracy, inequality and criminal justice in modern American history. He's the author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern America, which won the 2011 John Hope Franklin Best Book Award in American Studies. He's also an award-winning teacher uh, at Harvard uh, whose commentary on contemporary America is featured in such outlets as the New York Times, the New Yorker, National uh, Public Radio, uh, and The Nation. Uh, before we begin, let me just say a few words about today's format. Um, we've set this up as a, as a conversation, and so for the first 20, 25 minutes or so, I'm going to be asking Khalil uh, questions about issues that touch on today's uh, topic, democracy and race in America. We'll then open it up to questions from all of you. And you can send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom as soon as you want to. Um, you, and for those of you on Twitter, the hashtag for today is LSE US Race. So normally at this point, um, I would ask all of you to put your hands together to give Khalil, one of those warm LSC welcomes that we're famous for. But that, of course, is not possible. But I know a lot of you have been waiting for um, this event. And so in lieu of applause, I encourage you to begin posing questions to him in the Q&A period. And I'm going to do my level best to get in as many as possible. So with that, Khalil, welcome to the LSC. It's really great to have you on the platform today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. So I thought I would start things off by asking you about an essay um, that you wrote for um, the Boston Review back in um, September 2017. It was shortly after the Unite the Right rally in uh, Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, um, and um, you were reflecting in the piece on the on the connections between populism, race, uh, and history in the United States. And you wrote that American democracy is contingent on learning from the past, not overcoming it. And I, I was struck by that phrase. Um, uh, and I, I thought, here we are. It's four years later. It's over four years later. Um, and what have we learned or perhaps what might America have learned from casting that moment in Charlottesville against a broader historical canvas for you as a historian of the United States? What has the national conversation about race revealed since you wrote that essay? And, and I suppose what's still missing to your mind when you kind of reflect back on it? Yeah, thank you, Peter. It's uh, it, it, it's I hadn't thought of it as a as a milestone in a way because that piece was published in 2017, and as it, everyone will recall, this was within the first uh, several months of uh, Donald Trump's uh, presidency, and so I was not only reflecting on what had occurred in Charlottesville, uh, in the um, uh, blocking the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue, a Confederate monument, uh, on the campus of the University of Virginia. 
but also it was sort of my first effort to really process the Donald Trump election. I think the short answer to your question, Peter, is that things went from bad to worse. <laughs> and so, um, you know, looking back over the course of that moment to January 6th, it's not hard to make a connection between a history that produced a civil war uh, where 750,000 uh, white and black Americans, Northerners and Southerners died in battle over the fundamental question of the limits of liberty and freedom, not on the expansion of. Mm -hmm. And so the core tension in this country about whether our liberal democracy was meant to be for everyone or for a, uh, a narrower group of people uh, defined often by their whiteness. Uh, historians have long called this Heronbok uh, democracy, a democracy of the people and the people being narrowly defined as white and often Christian in the United States. Uh, Donald Trump from 2017, I think defied all expectations uh, and the base of supporters, which is often assumed to be about 30% as the kind of hardcore uh, base. Populism is a tricky term in defining those people because while they certainly have some economic concerns, uh, populism is cheapened by their white nationalist and white supremacist leanings. Uh, because populism can move in either direction. It can be a populist movement uh, for the expansion of economic privileges as well as uh, democracy or contraction. So I think for me, the lesson learned here is that um, in a country where it's fair to say historical illiteracy is more the norm than the uh, experience based on what we know happens in our nation's classrooms, um, we have been um, teaching Americans uh, to believe a very narrow mythos uh, of exceptionalism of a nation that is always doing better than it had before. And that lie, that big lie in America, um, showed up in, in the most explicit way in the Trump administration leading up to January 6th in the Capitol uh, insurrection. So I think we have, uh, we have a clear case um, of an existential crisis. Uh, it's not clear to me that in light of the Biden administration taking office, that this is not a historical equivalent to Abraham Lincoln being elected in 1860 and taking office and being inaugurated on March 4th, 1861. Mm -hmm. And then literally six weeks later, uh, South Carolinians uh, fired on Fort Sumter and began the Civil War. You know, I'm not given to hyperbole, uh, but these things are all possible in this nation and we have to take heed. Right. Um, well, that's... Uh that's kind of breathtaking and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, it, um, um, I guess there's a, you know, there's a, a great deal of kind of hope and promise. I, I think with the, the Biden administration, a lot of people are putting, um, attaching, um, great weight to the nominations that he's putting forward and to the, diversity of um, of the cabinet and he's rolling out today the first judicial uh the the slate of uh judicial nominees that he is uh, appointments that he's going to put forward yet nevertheless i mean it is a, it's an important kind of caution especially when you think i mean today right before the senate there are two very big pieces of voting rights legislation they have passed the House, um, but they're sitting at the Senate um, right now. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the John Lewis Voting Rights a Advancement Act um, and um, what's called For the People Act or H.R. Uh, 1, which would make it harder for um, state elected uh, officials to gerrymander uh, voting districts. Um, both of these bills um, seem at this moment to be, you know, offer an opportunity um, in a sense to redress some of the issues that in a sense have been, have been raised over the last four years, not only at the federal level, but also at the state level. And I guess as a, as a historian looking at these moments and looking at this legislation and the prospect that if it were put forward in the case of the John Lewis bill, and if it were to pass, it would restore 
uh, in important ways, um, key segments of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that was overturned, uh, as you know, by the 2013 Supreme Court decision. I guess when you look out, I mean, do you see what are the prospects here and what's the promise here? Or is your great worry that this is just going to be filibustered to death and that it is just going to like pour additional fuel or fan the flames? Well, I don't have to speculate. We've been promised. (laughs) We've been promised by the Republican Party uh, that neither of these bills will pass um, without a single vote in favor of H.R. 1 or H.R. 4. That's 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 the state of play. It's not a speculation. Uh, The only question at play is whether or not um, there will be uniform uh, Democrat in terms of Democratic Party support. And right now that's not even clear. So it then raises the question of the degree to which the filibuster becomes the uh, consistent and primary mechanism to ensure that a majority vote is not sufficient uh, for passing these uh, legislative needs. Listen, to some degree, Peter, uh, these are absolutely essential corrections um, to the challenge of voting rights in the United States of America. Again, just to state the obvious. I think the less obvious here is that we really have to be clear about the Shelby versus Holder decision, which made an assumption. Now, again, you've summarized the the basic uh, problem here, which is that um, the original Voting Rights Act of 1965 required uh, essentially traditional Jim Crow states uh, to seek um, federal approval before changing the rules of who gets to vote. this was not only about federal and state elections, but also very much about local elections, which affect the quality of people's lives in the most direct and impactful ways. Mm-hmm. So over the years of renewal, 25 years of renewal, renewals was quite common. Um, the assumption was, well, you know, this is a good thing. This holds everyone accountable. There's transparency here. No last minute changes that are hard to deal with because you have to go to court to solve for those um, discriminatory efforts. Well, when John Roberts uh, said that uh, there was evidence of wide-scale participation and that in Ohio, one could argue there was just as much concern about discrimination, therefore picking on the the, the bad old South uh, was just simply not fair, he was speaking to the precise point that I keep making. Too many white Americans today refuse to take the lessons of the past as a way of saying, why would we do anything that looks like the past in any way, smells like it, uh, presents like it, looks like it, if they truly believed that the legacy of Dr. King, for example, who is often trotted out as evidence of American exceptionalism, um, is something they truly believe. Because at the end of the day, if we had a common shared commitment to democracy and justice in this country, we would always be thinking about that history as the backstop against the kinds of political choices we might make for our short-term gain, for our own selfish greed. And this to me is the failure of the Roberts Court. The failure of the Roberts Court was to imagine that history can be measured in years and maybe a couple of decades. And of course, you know, I'm talking to someone, <laughs> you know, in a, in a part of the world that is much older than the United States. And so, you know, Europeans understand intrinsically that, that history is really not about what happened a decade ago or four years ago or 10 years ago. And so there's something about the unwillingness of our most elite political actors in this society to accept the lessons of the 20th century, to accept the centrality and fundamental foundation that once slavery ended, we built entirely new policies and practices to advance new forms of discrimination, including mass incarceration, perhaps the most effective way of uh, disenfranchising uh, Black Americans and low-income Americans in the United States. So yes, short answer, um, I'm glad the House has passed these two bills. We are replaying and redoing history all over again. Uh, Will they succeed? It is not at all clear but the larger context in which we are having this legislative debate in the first place is a terrible omen of the near-term future of the United States. Let me turn to a different topic, Um, you know, talking about the past. Um, 
Evanston, um, the city council in Evanston, um, well, last week uh, approved what it called a local reparations restorative housing program, which was, you know, which is aimed at at compensating African-American residents for discriminatory policies and practices in the city's past. Um, and under the program, as I understand it, you know, residents can receive up to 25,000 in grants for repairs or a down payment on, on, um, on homes. And it sparked, it seems to me, a kind of debate. Some have called the initiative historic, uh, it's not the only local initiative that was out there, but I guess it, it is the first one that has, has passed. But there are others. There was a piece in the Washington Post yesterday saying that this is going to do more harm than, than good. Um, because among other things, in fact, it's local as opposed to being federal. And so you don't get the full weight of the federal government behind it. And I, I guess, you know, I know that you have written and, and lectured and um, about reparations and that debate. Where are we in this? And what's your take on this? Is this a, a, a just a purely symbolic act or a significant local move that opens the door in a significant way? I think the short answer is yes. We should take our victories where we can gain them. Um, and I'm not you know, I'm not backsliding here on the kind of short-term victories uh, that I just discredited in the last answer. I think reparations um, is such an obvious solution to a 400-year-old problem um, that any legislative momentum in that right direction is something to build on. And here's why I say it's so obvious. In the United States, as is true in, in, in every inch of the earth that I know of, money is the currency of accountability. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, particularly in the United States, uh, whether they are private firms or private individuals, uh, even in the case of the George Floyd case, the, the way in which justice has, and let me backtrack, some measure of accountability has been delivered to Floyd has been a $27 million settlement. Right. If you look across police agencies, just again, just one slice of this conversation, um, millions of dollars are paid out annually in wrongful death or brutality lawsuits by cities. So Americans are quite uh, um, aware and consistent in their willingness to write checks rather than to solve policy problems. Um, companies routinely uh, don't admit harm uh, in exchange for settlements. Uh, I believe Boeing, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm recalling news that's now a couple months old, but I, I believe even Boeing hasn't admitted harm um, despite the investigation, but has settled. Um, certainly is true. And if I'm wrong about Boeing, it's certainly true of the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma mm -hmm. and the settlement. So why is it in the case of achieving accountability for the harms done to people of African descent in the United States, that all of a sudden the primary way in which Americans typically understand what accountability looks like, they can't do it. And so kudos to Evanston for making a first effort at this kind of difficult work. Um, it has limitations. They've been uh, rightly called out and in Identifying those limitations, for example, restricting $25,000 to home improvements or home purchases, right. which, of course, means some of the people who were victimized who are still alive, who don't live in Evanston anymore, have no interest in owning a home or improving one because they live elsewhere. Um, and, of course, implicit and implied in the notion of home is a way of saying, you know, we want to make sure the money is put to good use, which strips back people of their agency. And then lastly, of course, in a housing market that is dominated by white residents and their property values, this kind of $10 million potential infusion to the housing market also benefits <laughs> white homeowners. So there's a lot of ways in which this may have been an easier solution than some of the more difficult ones, including at the federal level. Oh, interesting. Um you mentioned um, the trial just briefly of um, uh, Derek Chauvin, and I, I just I want to follow up, I guess, on that. Um, I mean, yesterday, uh, much of the country was riveted, um, uh, I think, on the first day of the, um, 
the trial. Um, and, um, um, and I, you know, and I, we've got people from all over the world on the, on the platform here. I mean, I, you know, um, from Italy, France, Thailand, the Philippines, Nigeria, Cambodia, Vietnam, Japan, Peru. I want to welcome everybody. But I think people from, you know, all over the world are following this trial. Um, the former Minneapolis um, police officer charged in the killing of George Floyd. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, how should we be thinking about this trial and in your mind and it, it, its possible implications for policing reform in the United States. And I say this because uh, it comes at a time when, as you know, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is, is at the risk of stalling again in, in Congress. And also because Biden has just an unbelievable legislative um, agenda right now that includes a huge infrastructure spending package, major tax reforms to pay for it. And I, I, if we can judge him by his comments last week at, at the press conference, you know, um, a commitment to pushing that voting rights legislation through, even if it, you know, it means reforming and possibly ditching the filibuster. He hasn't said ditching, but he's clearly talked about reforming. Um, so I guess, you know, help us kind of put this moment in context. And you've done so much work yourself on policing. How should we be thinking about this? Possible outcomes, range of outcomes, its po potential policy impact? Yeah. So I would say that uh, the Chauvin trial outcome and the conviction of Chauvin on all charges uh, from second degree, third degree murder and uh, manslaughter uh, would be the floor for what we might call justice in this moment. Uh, because, of course, the standards by which we judge harm uh, redound to individual actors, in this case, the four officers involved in the killing of George Floyd. But of course, this is a systemic problem. And interestingly, listening to the defense attorneys uh, keep saying that uh, Derek Chauvin was doing what he was trained to do. And I, and I think we ought to take that seriously, because at the end of the day, uh, policing is an extension of the state. The, extent, the state is an extension of our democratic processes. And the extent to which we, the people, um, are calling for a different form of state response to, uh, to property crime, to community violence, uh, to individual conflict, um, is what ought to come out from this. The federal government, of course, in the Floyd uh, Policing Act has limited um, control over local and state policing. There are roughly 18,000 agencies uh, and only a very small, very, very small set of federal agencies that can be controlled. But the federal government is a bully pulpit. It has grant making abilities to provide technical assistance. As we know, during the Clinton and Biden's, the, the height of Biden's power in Senate, um, used tremendous resources to expand policing and ultimately the criminal justice system and, and help to put in place what is called mass incarceration today. So the federal government can do some of the work to shrink its budgetary power in supporting local policing. We can do that either with a carrot approach or a stick approach. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is possibility here to grow from this. But if we keep thinking about this as an individual failure of a, of a rotten cop or a cop who went too far, then we're going to fail to rise to the moment, Peter. Um, I guess I want to turn the, the conversation in a slightly different direction. Um, I'm looking at some of the questions coming in uh, as well. Um, but I think it follows in a way from this. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your role as a, as a teacher um, and in what it is that um, you try to transmit to your students um, when you're teaching about race in America, and I, I know you teach, among other things, two different courses, one called Race and uh, Inequality in American Democracy, 
Um, and then race and racism in the making of the United States as a, as a global um, power. And you're teaching at one of the premier public policy schools in the United States. So you've got mid-career people, but, you know, people, I guess, also straight out of undergraduate. And, you know, what is it that you try to get them to, to take away? Um, and is it a, is it a set of tools? Is it a, a way of thinking about, um, about race um, in the United States? Is it, um, well, I, 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 what is it? What are, what, what are kind of the, the takeaways, you know? Yeah, great. You know, you make me want to pull up my syllabus to look at the, uh, the, key, the key learning objectives, but I'm not going to do that. I think well, I- it's kind of like, what's your philosophy? Like, how do you cut into it? We, yeah. got a lot of, we have a lot of faculty <laughs> on the platform who, who teach in this area, I'm sure. And yeah, so, yeah, it would be- I was joking. I was joking. Listen, you know, it's quite simple. Um, you know, the premise is that you can't understand the last 500 years of history without understanding uh, how race became its own religion of hierarchy. Yeah. And so whereas the 500 to 1,000 years before the 16th century, religion uh, and, and language um, as, as places of the world became uh, city nations or nation states, mm-hmm. um, religion had been a primary organizing tool for, uh, for how hierarchy moved and how conquest proceeded. Uh, race becomes part of that package. Uh, it, it is uh, coterminous with the transatlantic slave trade, um, which is coterminous with uh, the rise of global trade, which is the building blocks and the foundation of capitalism. So, if you're looking at it from my vantage point as a historian, uh, you're saying to yourself, how is it possible that 20 to 50 somethings can come to one of the world's premier policy schools where half of our students matriculate uh, from other parts of the world and they can come in and graduate without learning anything about race, racism or colonialism? Uh, they, they understand and they, they come from countries that are defined as the global south but the notion that somehow the global north is innocent in the maldistribution of power and resources that relate to those countries that are solving for. We have classes that literally solve for why are countries so poor, but don't necessarily say because Europeans came and extracted as much as they could in the way of land, labor and natural resources. <laughs> so, so it's like it doesn't make any sense. Um, and so for the first time, uh, the Kennedy School has been under significant pressure. The Trump administration laid bare some of the um, absurdities of not dealing with these issues. Uh, and of course, the students themselves have become much more engaged, including our international students. So the, so the takeaway is that you can't actually make sense of the world without understanding race, racism, and colonialism. And you most certainly in the tradition of scientific investigation, can't come up with good solutions if your diagnosis is wrong or only half accurate. That's it. It's not any more complicated than that. And let me just extend this point one second further, Peter. This is true of every professional school that exists, not just at Harvard, at MIT, and everywhere you go. Because what the COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated to us is that all of these systems are overlapping and interlocking. And so the degree to which our public health sector, our medical professionals, our business sector can't solve for how to roll out coordinated strategies that start with the most vulnerable, who are the essential black and brown people of the United States, um, is about as clear an indictment of the fact that we have too many high achieving, smart people who are quite dumb when it comes to understanding how race and racism actually operate in their daily lives. And to their credit, a lot of these schools and a lot of the individuals who are in leadership roles at these schools have have looked at the evidence in front of them and said, wow, like, I get it now. I understand. So uh, we are changing. uh, One of my colleagues uh, who works with me at at Harvard is a former uh, medical physician, and, you know, she works with me directly. And so we talk a lot about these things. But she she pointed out to me that we now have new board certification standards that recognize that new physicians have to be trained to understand how to recognize simple things like, you know, evidence of clinical uh, malpractice when diagnosing black patients as being, you know, 
more pain tolerant than their white colleagues. Just simple things. Even the opioid crisis is partly a kind of reverse story of, of, of discrimination where white patients were assumed to be more responsible <laughs> in overprescribed pain medications, whereas black people until quite recently weren't showing up in the early data uh, as being part of the opioid crisis. It, it has finally caught up with them. Huh. But all of these things are very hard to understand if well-educated people are not taught how the world came to look the way it looks over the past 500 years. Right. And you're, are you finding, you know, I know that you've got this other project, and I, actually I'm going to just take a couple more minutes to ask you about this. Um, the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Pro- Project, I think you call it IARA, right? right. I, 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 sure, yes. <laughs> so um, what really struck me about it, well, so it's a new program. It's, I think it's only a couple years old. That's correct. Um, and there were two things that struck me about it. First of all, so it's a research-oriented program, but it is directed towards private and, I think, public organizations to get them to, um, to, to help them learn best practices in terms of recruitment and governance and accountability. And I'm, I'm sure other things, but those are the ones that stuck out. But the other thing that struck me about it was that the first subject was JFK itself that you guys. Right. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that. And is this, is this something that's open to students there? It's a faculty driven and open or. Yeah. So, so it's a research project and uh, we have graduate students who work uh, with us. Um, I don't have other faculty colleagues participating directly at, at this time. That may happen as we move forward with some additional funding. Uh, because we do have some, you know, pretty robust research plans, which will recall, mm-hmm. require some of my colleagues to, to pitch in. Um, but the, the idea of starting with JFK is the idea of taking on this, the civil sector. You know, if you're, if you're trying to solve for anti-racism or racial equity or even diversity, how, however broadly defined uh, people generally do, a lot of individual leaders think about personal accountability. How can I be a good person? Um, how can I present better? How can I be a more effective leader? Um, and so that's the personal. And then there's the political, which is what we've been talking about. Right. But oftentimes leaders don't think about like, what obligation do I have within my own company to behave differently in the marketplace? No. Because partly this is about what happens in the company in terms of uh, recruitment, retention, pay equity. But it's also about how the company lives and breathes in civil society. And, you know, one very crystal clear example um, in this time is that a lot of companies put their money, um, you know, not only to support Donald Trump in 2016, uh, Mm -hmm. but in the runoff elections of the Georgia Senate race between John Ossoff and um, and David Perdue and uh, Warnock and Kelly Loeffler, a lot of private hedge funds went directly uh, for the Trump candidates, the Trump surrogates. And we have a lot of companies right now, uh, Citigroup included, that has been subject to scrutiny for um, supporting various congressional races uh, where the voting records of those candidates were uh, marked as uh, failing grades by the NAACP. So it's clear in a country just awash with uh, money in politics that the private sector has a huge role to play in our political outcomes. And so what we tried to do was to connect the meso, right, the, the neither the micro or the macro, but the in-between, which is civil society, which are our institutions, and to say, how can they play a more intentional role in producing racial equity in society? And I believe, as a theory of change, that if we stop looking outside of ourselves, meaning the institutions we work on for fixing other people, then we'll all be more accountable. And so we started with the Kennedy School because the Kennedy School is part of a, uh, an e- ecosystem. Harvard University is a huge institutional investor, is still unwilling to divest of fossil fuels, uh, is still resisting even a simple fix, which is to divest of private prisons, uh, which is only a tiny bit of its investment portfolio, but as a matter of principle, it doesn't want to go down the slippery slope of using divestment. Um, as some kind of uh, response to activist demands. So I think that Harvard University and the Kennedy School where I work in particularly is a perfect place to begin 
uh, to both experiment and innovate around these tough questions. And, and just uh, let me follow up and then I'm gonna, I truly am gonna go to the questions um, on this. From the research that you and your team have done so far, I mean, what, do, what are you finding that organizations respond to the most? Is it, is it pressure from, I don't know, either like outside groups or whistleblowers within the organization? Or is it market incentives that, you know, I mean, they're not like totally different, but I'm, I'm kind of curious what comes up through, through the research at this, at this stage. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, and uh, so we, I won't take credit for this research. I'll say that we are aggregating other scholars research and we've launched right. a website. It's rrapp.org. Uh, Folks can go to it and see, but here's, here's a short answer. It's all of the above uh-huh. um, in, in moments of significant crisis, companies that are not on anyone's radar have shown themselves to be willing to make change, um, at least performative uh, to claim it. And that is what we saw in the wake of George Floyd. Um, Your point about market pressure, though, is related because the truth is that when companies are looking at pressure from activist organizations or activist shareholders, they're also anticipating a market penalty. Um, And they don't want to end up being on the short end of uh, of, a, of a scandal or the appearance of being of lagging behind. So I think that we know pretty well that pressure works, but it has limited impact. And we also know that as long as shareholders are the primary market indicators, that is those who hold stock in publicly held companies, um, we're not gonna see as much change. This is, we are learning, for example, from the ESG space, exactly how difficult it is to get companies um, who claim to be good stewards of, uh, of, of, in, of our environment um, are reluctant to subject themselves to stricter regulatory and transparency standards. So this is not an easy lift, right. uh, but if we're not at least committed to focusing on it, I'm not sure it's going to ever change. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like a fascinating, like a great project program. And I imagine you'll get multi-year funding from maybe from maybe corporate funding for that. So listen, we got a lot of questions already. There's a, a number of them in the in the Q and A here. Here's one. So you're on you're on the LSE platform. It's an international platform. So some people want they're putting forward comparative questions. So let me take this one from um, an LSE alum, Erica Lick. Uh, she got her MSc in criminal justice policy. So it's right in your wheelhouse. Um, so I would love to hear um, Dr. Muhammad's take on what we, what should be learned cross transatlantically? Like what do we need to be looking at in the UK to better understand how anti-blackness and racism function in the UK um, and London, what do LSE students need to be looking at and and talking about? So I guess um, to the extent that your work is is comparative, drawing on it, or what are some of the takeaways from the US side? Yeah, and I, I think the question might be uh, getting at the context in which race is lived and experienced um, in, uh, in England. Uh, and the broader UK. So the degree to which anti-blackness, so, so here's one, one takeaway that the students learn is that um, you have to sort of follow a series of, of suppositions. Um, anti-blackness helped to organize the financial capital that produced the wealth of, of the Atlantic. Okay, probably not that controversy, but you know, some economists are still saying, no, that's not the case. That, Okay, so let's take that as one supposition. So anti-Blackness functions in that context. The United States quickly becomes a wealthy nation by late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, Great Britain is still wealthy, but not quite its former self. You know, it's four decades away from losing its its stranglehold on the world. Um, And the United States all of a sudden becomes, you know, the nation's wealthiest country by mid 20th century. Um, And yet it's anti-blackness has never been purged, which is to say that at the moment when the United States becomes a global leader and the moral voice of liberal democracy in the world, it has perfected 350 years of anti-blackness as core to its institutions. Um, I mean, we are not even at the civil rights movement if I'm marking 1950 as a key moment. Just when 
just when Great Britain and much of Western Europe needs the United States. So if you take all of those suppositions, then you'd say that for the last 50 years, the United States has been instructing the rest of the world on how to be a successful, wealthy, um, first world nation. In spite of the fact that you know, the United Nations lives in New York and yet we, harp, we, we don't follow a lot of <laughs> the rules that the United Nations is suggesting that we ought to. So there's a lot of contradiction. And I think to that end, the question is, should um, London or any other city in, in England or anywhere else in Europe be learning from Bill Bratton, for example, when he travels abroad and provides technical assistance to the Metropolitan Police Force about you know, how to do anti-terrorism or anti-Muslim or anti-Black. These are real questions because the extent to which the United States' own contradictions about what it means to practice liberal democracy are being exported. And I have a lot of colleagues who focus on that export process. One wrote a book called uh, Badges Without Borders, written by Stuart Schrader, which is very much about the exportation of, of police practices from the United States abroad another by a colleague, Nicole Siegel, who's written a book called Violence Work, which looks particularly at um, an office that looked to Latin America to provide technical assistance. Um, we are essentially exporting, exporting some of our worst practices. And I think that that's what we need to focus and call out in order to make sure that other parts of the world, as they become blacker and browner, and as immigrants from North Africa and West Africa move into Europe or from the Middle East, uh, that they don't look to the United States uh, to help solve these challenges of immigration because we are not a role model in this way. Speaking of role models, so there's a question here um, from uh, Angela Chen, which is about what's happening to Asian and Asian Americans um, since the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic. And so the question is, how does the discourse around model minorities um, come to play with regard to race relations and especially kind of the surge of hate crimes against Asian Americans? I, I suppose, I mean, when you reflect on what is happening right now in the United States to Asian Americans, I mean, <laughs> What are, I mean, this is, I mean, these, these crimes are not, you know, we were just talking about policing and so forth. The source of this is, is, is different, it seems to me. Um, your thoughts about this? I mean, but it, it does go to the question of America presenting itself as an exceptional state or power yeah. or nation. That's right. Yeah, so listen, um, the, the very crass, anti-Asian, uh, hateful rhetoric coming from the Trump administration for four years has played a huge role in the emergence of uh, increased levels of anti-AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander violence playing out over the past several years. I mean, we can literally track and correlate um, the racist speech coming from either other local Republican officials and or the Trump administration. Some of this is just a recycling of old yellow peril racism that emerged in the late 19th century, particularly against Chinese immigrants as vectors of vice and disease that needed to be removed from the United States. Chinese immigrants were the first population of foreign workers in this country to be subjected to uh, immigration restriction laws with the Page Act in 1875 and later the Chinese Immigration Act. So I, again, in a country that seems to be almost allergic uh, to certain chapters in its history, uh, it's much easier for these histories to play out and for people to imagine that, that they're not like their predecessors, that we are not replaying history. When you say the uh, differences are not state-based, um, so that's, comp you know, that's not exactly true. The state has been a voice and vehicle uh, for calling out a minority population. I mean, we could imagine if we were in Rwanda um, in the 1990s, we would recognize this exactly for what it has been, or the case in Myanmar, or the case uh, for Chinese immigrants against Muslim uh, Tibetans, uh, for example. So there's a lot of parallels that we recognize, but in the United States, we're tripped up by the mythologies um, that 
that these things don't look the same as they do in other parts of the world. Right. And I'll say finally that the degree to which this uh, vigilante violence um, is deeply rooted in the soil of the United States, right. um, we do have to recognize that the greatest threat of domestic terrorism um, is from white men in the United States. And it's been that way for a very long time. So we have a couple of, we have a number of questions about um, elections and African-Americans in elections and race in elections. Um, and I, I suppose one of the, the, one of these has to do with, um, so there were a lot of stunning things about the 2020 election. Um, the turnout was historic. I mean, you have to go back to 1900 to see turnout like that with 160 million Americans showing up. Um, and Biden's this stunning victories in, you know, Republican Arizona, Republican Georgia. Um, but there's also Trump's strength winning uh, 74 million voters, including 31% of Latino voters and about 12% of African-American voters. 8% women, black women, 12% black men. Right. Well, that's what I was, correct. Actually, I think the number of, of African, African-American male voters is slightly higher than that, no? Anyway. The percent was 12 that I last knew from exit polls, but it's, yeah. it grew from 2016, if that's true. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you about. So what is going on there? There seems to be, you know, there's... Completing competing narratives about this that you know it just has to do with a couple rap singers endorsing um, Donald Trump to know there's something about class that is cutting across race or it has to do with the interaction between class and race and I know there are Republican kind of operatives or consultants that think that there's like some potential for the Republican Party to actually you know, build support among African-American males. I mean, what's your thought about this? Yeah. Is this much about nothing or is there something here? Um, I mean, these are not huge numbers, but they're never, it nevertheless is a change. Yeah, no, I, I think they're, they're, worth, uh, they're worth trying to understand. Before I talk about Black voters, I do want to mention this because I might forget on the Latin American or the Hispanic Latinx vote. I think that the explicit uh, linking of the Biden administration, it's um, left, um, left of center policy platform being defined as socialism resonates within a broader Latin American world, mm -hmm. of which people have come from socialist countries and see that as the greatest evil in the world. So I think that's one way to understand the reticence of some uh, Hispanic and Latin ex voters when it comes to these issues. With regard to black voters, you know, there's, there's one thing we don't talk as much about in these kinds of conversations, um, but black political scientists know this quite well, which is that there is a strain of the black community that believes that white racism is so unrepentant, um, so um, unwilling to change, and therefore there's a kind of acceptance that the only thing you can do in a political context um, is to try to gain as much as you can as an individual. And so there's no collective responsibility. There's no collective fate. There is simply white people will never do right by us. The Democratic Party is a plantation, as the right often calls the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is full of racists, of which they recognize and see these people just like we do. And so if Donald Trump is promising to give me more of X, Y, and Z that makes sense to me, including keeping more of my money in my paycheck, then I'm voting for Donald Trump because I don't think that Joe Biden is any more authentic, a messenger of truth and justice than Donald Trump is. They're both liars. They're both unrepentant white men who don't care enough about black. That's a really important strain. The other strain I would argue is, is a, a fair amount of ignorance within the community that goes for the propaganda coming out of the Trump administration. Donald Trump is a celebrity uh, uh, former reality TV star. Donald Trump knew that by, um, supporting the HBCUs with additional funding, uh, which he did do, um, could become a talking point and to essentially capture a portion of that community. 
Um, he claimed credit for the First Step Act, which of course had come up under the Biden administration, I'm sorry, under the Obama administration, right. uh, and was scuttled by Mitch McConnell, then head of the Senate, who would not bring the bill to a vote. Right. When Trump is in office, he comes up for a vote, he signs it and then takes credit for criminal justice reform. And so people could point to that and say, well, Biden was the person who passed massive mass incarceration bills. It's Donald Trump who's it. So that's a lot of that is just, you know, the level of sophistication of the voter and being able to discern the differences between those different talking points. Um, and then I think there are, you know, very individualistic black voters um, who may not think that all white people are racist or unrepentant and may actually have a high literacy for understanding the political stakes and then simply choose to support the guy who's promising a very business friendly platform, regardless of how many white supremacists support him. Right. Olivia Vincenti asked the following question. Could you say something about defunding the police and the historical, well, let's leave it there. I mean, the kind of historical and current role of policing the African-American community. I'm afraid if I let you go to the second part, we'll be, we'll go over time. So, you know, you can. I give you you a short answer on defund. Um, I I am currently serving on the National Academies of Sciences uh, study, uh, Uh co-chairing it with Bruce Western on reducing racial inequalities in the criminal justice system. And while I am not speaking for the committee, um, I can say that we've had two rounds of public workshops. And so these are public events where we've learned from both researchers and practitioners. And as a matter of building on the conversation, which was an activist initiated conversation last year to where the National Academies is starting to hear from practitioners. Defund is simply making sure that at the local level, budgets are documents that are accountable to the stakeholders in those communities, which means ultimately asking these kinds of questions. Why is it that police budgets are the largest budget line items in so many municipalities in the United States? Why is it that in places like Oakland, California, the police budget um, quite regularly goes over by 40% of what has been legislatively approved by the city council. And you have some police officers making $300,000 in services. Why? Because in so many cases, there is no political cost for local leaders to have police officers do everything, A to Z, soup to nuts, when it comes to addressing community needs. And so as social workers with guns, it's a lot easier to say, we're going to increase the budget for the police. And it's a lot more politically harder to say, we're going to actually do direct service um, with the agencies that have been traditionally set up to do this, but are chronically underfunded. And so we can just simply take the slogan out of its kind of difficult political space and, and describe exactly what people are doing on the ground in community after community by asking these questions about where we put our money as moral statements about what our priorities are. Now you said you you ran you've you've run a couple public uh, events or uh, like town halls with this and so what kind of traction when you remove the questions the specific questions from the phrase so it it gets it gets traction with the audience people because this is really how do you justify where you're spending priorities that's right. Well, let let me clarify. These are public workshops where we, the committee, uh, made up of, I believe, 15 of us with a a chair of the the study, are inviting researchers and practitioners to present in a public forum. I see. Okay. Yeah. So the idea is that we are uh, hearing from people who are subject to public transparency because a lot of the committee work is deliberative and closed door. Um, but we wanted to make sure that both the public can see who we are hearing from and also that those people participating can speak directly to that audience as well as to us. All right. So we have a question here from John Newham from um, uh, Newham from um, uh, London University. Um, and it's about Georgia. Uh, everything it seems to be about Georgia. Like, so it's about voter suppression in Georgia. And, the question is whether we, what we are seeing in what was enacted in, in Georgia last week is likely to um, be challenged in the courts. I think it already is, actually, and find its way up to the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, um, already filed a lawsuit. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, what's your, I mean, it, some of it seems just so incredibly, um, you know, beyond the pale, like people can't be given water or seats in a line and so forth. And, and who are waiting in line. I mean, what's your sense of the kind of the viability of these moves as it, it moves up the courts that the Supreme Court would actually uphold something like this or that it would actually backfire? Yeah, I mean, my guess is that the Supreme Court will have to weigh in um, because of the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment. Um, yeah. And so, so we will see a decision at some point. I think that the Supreme Court is probably going to split the difference. It's probably going to restore some things uh, that, that this um, act, in, including drawing a line around what is considered electioneering right. um, in a situation where you do have el elderly people. I mean, the irony of needing food and water is a consequence of the formula in Georgia that says rural counties and urban counties ought to be equal despite the fact that the density of population means that polling sites need to stay open longer. So they say, right. you know, a polling site in rural county seems to get the job done. It should close at five. Why should a polling site in Fulton County where, right. you know, much denser population of working people, different kinds of jobs gets to stay open to 10 o'clock, which means that people who are counted in line up to a certain time have to get there and then wait in line for five or six hours. Yeah. So, it's creating a problem where no problem should have existed in the first place, which is why you have the water question. So I think it's likely that the Supreme Court will, will cherry pick the parts that are so blatantly obvious as targeting um, black voters and voters in urban counties where obviously the numbers run up significantly. And they will uh, kick back some of the things like stripping the secretary of state from the right to oversee elections, right. um, which is a way of basically being able to fire people or to, to remove their right to oversee local elections when they choose so. Um, so as much as I know the court is six to three in favor of Republican appointees, right. my guess is that there will be a mixed decision. Right. So, um, oh, by the way, and, and the reason I say that is because I think that the Supreme Court is going to sign off on the voting integrity part of the, the quote, so-called voting integrity part, which is to say to require licenses for absentee ballots. Right. Um, I think they're going to sign off on that. And I don't think they're going to sign off on it because it's the right thing to do. I think they're going to sign off on it because they're going to find merit to the legal argument. What about the part of it uh, that struck me as, in quotes, innovative, is that they took authority away from actually local officials. So in a way, what's happening is that the federal government is out of the picture and the local officials who actually have the most knowledge about what the hell is going on on the ground, you know, um, are removed through this so that the authority remains really with state officials. And that seems to be a big change. Yeah, well, I, I just mentioned it uh, in, in turn, solving for Brad Rapsenberger, who was yeah. the person who called out the potential for violence in the right. wake of what's happening uh, as he saw it. Yeah, I mean, this is this uh, actually cuts against the, one of the core ideological pillars of republicanism, right, which is that local is always best, <laughs> except that the state Republican Party feels most confident in its ability to protect the interests of the party when it comes to elections, whether they are local, state or federal. So look at Khalil. Um, we have two minutes left. We have an LSE MSC student who uh, her name is Paige Anderholm, who's actually submitted two questions. I'm not going to give you both, but I think I'm going to give you the the first question, where she asks: As young people beginning their careers in the policy world, what do we do? How do we break the harmful pattern of willing ignorance when it comes to U.S. history? And I, I think kind of more broadly, again, this is kind of putting on your teacher's hat in a way to just kind of take us home. What are some of the kind of takeaways here, you know, um, for people kind of thinking about their role, what role they could play in the policy world? dealing with questions of race and inequality uh, in the United States? 
Yeah, I think it's a great question. Look, you know, I'm writing a book about how to, to, to think about the last 50 years, particularly in the United States in the wake of the social movements of the 1960s. And I think I couldn't have asked for, you know, a better object lesson to point to in the last four years uh, in the United States, which is to say, um, if people can still come into a policy school and imagine uh, that they really don't have to understand all the dimensions of how race and racism shape um, the societies we live in, then they're kidding themselves and they're, you know, to use the, our, the point that was just made, they're being willfully uh, ignorant about these things. So to end on a happy note, I think um, <laughs> we, we have the, the urgency of now, we have a clear case of what the stakes are and if people really do believe in liberal democracy, if they really do believe uh, that governments are accountable to all the people and not just some of the people, and if people really do want to solve for the fact that you can look in many different countries and see that the same populations that have been historically oppressed and subject to whether it was genocide, whether it was state violence on a, on a huge scale, are the same populations that are unequal today and then continue to blame those people for somehow not picking themselves up and taking advantage of opportunities in a world that is more stratified today than it has been ever, then, you know, you get what you get. So if you want something different, you have to do differently. <laughs> and so it's an exciting time for changing our behavior. Khalil, that, that's a fantastic place to end. I appreciate that. On behalf of the U.S. Center, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today to share your thoughts about race and democracy in the United States. Could not be more timely. It's terrific having you on the platform. Thank you, Peter. It's a real joy to be here. Look forward to visiting in person one day. Yeah, it will be great. <laughs> and my, my, my dissertation advisor is an LSE grad himself, David Levering Lewis, the two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer of Du Bois. Fantastic. Well, you're welcome. It's an open invitation anytime. All right. Thank you. Very good. You take it easy. Bye now. Bye-bye.